Nick. Hello, Steve. How you doing? I'm all right. It's another podcast. It is, yeah. How you doing? I've had a um, tiring week. Really? Yeah. It's Saturday morning. Yeah, it's hey, a bit overcast outside. It's been raining. We just had a pizza. We did. We're Steve. About, and we're ready to do some podcasting. I'm annoyed with Steve at the moment. Why are you annoyed with me, Nick? Steve's gone vegan for <clears throat> January and yeah. also alcohol-free. And that just doesn't... Why does that annoy you? Why does it annoy you that someone else makes a, a decision, takes a decision? Well, I had all of these plans. I thought I was going to go into Waitrose with you and get yeah. like one of those... You know those like... Um, Posh pizzas that they have in Waitrose. Well, sort of like, with like they're square prosciutto. and stretched, and they've got all kinds of posh things. I thought we'd get one of them. We'd have a bit of rocket and tomato. We sit right. back. We share a pizza. Right. Instead, Steve had to have a vegan pizza. Obviously, I wasn't going to have a vegan pizza because you're not insane. Because I'm not stupid. <laughs> I had an yeah. old pizza, so it immediately made it a bit disappointing. And then I thought we could have a little beer later on before Steve goes home. And that, that avenue of pleasure has I've, been I've closed been drinking off a lot of alcohol-free beer recently. Um, but it's not as good. It's not as good, Nick. I know it's not as good. I've got a crate of um, Erdinger alcohol-free oh, beer. Do you know that? Do you know how they market that beer? They bar- uh, isotonic. Yeah, so they, so they, they try and flog <laughs> it at the end of like um, uh, triathlons Iron and marathons and stuff. Yeah, yeah I have they, heard that. Because they said, oh, you know, it's about, you know, it's full of lysine and you need to replace all of your amino acids and stuff. I think that's just PR wank, right? I think people are just sat around going, how can we find another way of selling stuff? I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but I, I, be, I occasionally had a can. I think it's useful. So if you've been out on the beers, because I'm old now, I find that I, the booze... Um, I get really bad hangovers. And I always, I, I'm a victim of having unnecessary beers so late you, at night. When you don't want them. It's like when, you, when you've been, you've had a few beers and it's late at night. Maybe you've come back from the pub you've been right. at. You think, oh, I'll sit back and maybe watch, you know, a recorded match of the day. Pop that on. Might fall asleep, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I fancy another beer. So they might have another beer or two. And you absolutely so you don't. don't need that. <laughs> it's always after about the third, fourth beer is when you're doing that, making those bad choices, isn't so it? So generally what I do is I um, I uh, I get an Erdinger can out these days. Nice. I, yeah, so that's quite nice. Anyway, it's Science Vinyl. It episode is. Episode six. Science Vinyl, yeah. So we're still going strong. What's the album this week, Steve? <laughs> the album this week is a monster. It is uh, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Oh, a lovely album. It's a bit, I find it a bit of a cliche now because everyone says, Oh, that's a hundred best album. I know, I'll tell you what, you've got to have, you, you know, it's a masterpiece. You've got to have Kind of Blue. Yeah. By Miles, that's a jazz masterpiece. The so everyone will have the jazz masterpiece. Yeah. Well, if you get, well, to be fair, if you're gonna have if you're gonna have a jazz album, might as well be the best jazz album. Yeah, fair play. It's a really, really good album. I've got it. I love it. It's I've brilliant. got it. I've got it on CD, vinyl, and obviously electronically. Well, bully for you. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I like it. So I'm looking forward to cracking on through if some science. If people haven't, if they've got this far and not come across Science Vinyl before, Nick, what is Science Vinyl? That's a good question, Steve. So Science Vinyl is an exploration of a, a piece of art, a musical piece of art, like a the- collection of tracks, an album, an exploration through the medium of science. So Steve and I, we pick an album. We're both uh, scientists. Yes, we're both, we're both uh, jobbing scientists. We pick an album and then we look at the tracks. We we get some inspiration from the tracks and we try and talk about some science that's relevant. When when you're when you're doing your homework for science final, do you listen to the music while you're doing it? Um I had I occasionally yeah I've, I've I do. done it. I've done yeah. it. I think it helps. 
Yeah, it definitely does. Kind of blue is sort of a very backgroundy thing, isn't it? You can um you can put it on in the background and still concentrate. Absolutely. Yeah, Slayer not so much. <laughs> Although I did used to do my homework to <laughs> Rain in Blood. Yeah. It's a bit of Slayer. You sort of sit in do your head bang, writing. Yeah, really trying to focus on some complicated <laughs> maths or something. Angel of Death! <laughs> Rise from the Kingdom of the Hey Steve, so okay, kind of blue, kind Miles Davis. Of blue. Tell me about it. Kind of blue is uh, is a studio album released by Miles Davis in 1959. 59. 59. That's like old school. It's recorded in March of 59. Did they have record players then? They. Yeah. Did they record? They they still have those gramophones you know that, that they the used groove. to wind thing. In, that that's because they used to record things completely analog. So you would have when you mean you're in the groove, it means the thing that's going to cut the the master on the vinyl is actually in in the groove. Wow! So you actually recorded directly onto a yeah, piece so, of plastic. Well, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of like um, uh, a, a recording artists. I know um, Third Man Records, which is a Jack White's uh, re- uh, record label. They're really into this, right? That everything is completely analog, right from the recording. It doesn't go through a computer at any point. It's just like the sound. And they say that you like that because you can hear all of the mistakes, right? Because you basically get one take for these kind of things, right? And jazz is a bit different anyway because people like the, the, the mistakes. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, you get one go. So you hear all like the little noises and all those things that really make a, a record and make it feel special, the ones you really like. Um, but I think that's true of a lot of those kind of old things. Anyway, it's, it, it's definitely kind of regarded by most critics as, as not only Miles Davis's, you know, kind of swan song and, and masterpiece, but uh, one of the one of the best jazz albums of all time, yeah. I think people look at it as. And um, Rolling Stone ranked it the twelfth greatest song ever um, in their uh, greatest albums of all time. The other good thing about it is that in, in later in life, uh, apparently Miles Davis w- would refuse to play this, and he would just say. And there's a really famous quote, uh, apparently, when um, he was being interviewed in 1986 by a, a, a music journalist called Ben uh, Sidron, <clears throat> and he said. So what or kind of blue? They were done in. They were done in that in. They were done in that era. The right hour, the right day, and it happened. What I used to play with Bill Evans, all those different modes and substitute chords. We had the energy and we liked it, but I have no feel for it anymore. So he was like, it was like a moment in time. He wasn't playing his best hits. It's not like if you go and see the Rolling Stones, you want them to play honky tonk. You know that you want them. To, you want to hear the big the big guns. He wouldn't do it anymore because no. it's, like, it's a moment a moment in time. Yeah. Um, and uh, someone asked him to whether he'd reconsider recording it like, in the mid-90s, and he famously said, nah, it hurts my lips. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's isn't as good? Good, a, good a reason as any, isn't it? Yeah. No, he's a well-known, unpleasant character, I think, Miles Davis. Really? I think so, like a curmudgeon, quite like quick, quick to anger. There's a famous... Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have any of his trumpeting talent. <laughs> So what was happening in the world in '59, Nick? What was going on? I got no idea. I mean, it who, was who four. Was the, who was the um, was Who was the British Prime Minister at the time? 
I, you know what? I don't think I could even tell you that. It was Macmillan. Harold was it? Macmillan. Okay. So there's a couple of big famous things that happened um, in both scientifically and just in the world. So if we think about what, what the world was like when Miles Davis recorded this. So Harold Macmillan uh, met, uh, met with um, Khrushchev in the USSR at the time. That was a big deal politically. Um, uh, Singapore was, was granted self-governing status then. So, you know, think about... It's funny with these things. You go back and you listen to A Kind of Blue. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't sound as old as, as, as it is, right? Because, like, here's an example. So in August of that year, Barclays Bank installed the first computer in a bank in 1959. Oh, my God. The first yeah. computer? Yeah. yeah. Wow. The Mini was launched. Um, the Mini? Really? The Mini was launched in 1959. And that is a big deal. By the uh, British Motor Company, BMC. Uh, the the Routemaster bus got on the streets of London for the I, very first time. Wow, so two iconic Isn't things. Isn't it? doesn't really it's get amazing. much bigger than that. Yeah. You don't do that anymore. Um, car ownership in Britain at the time was about 30%, just was past 30%. I mean, that's I higher than I would have thought, to be honest, for the 50s. Yeah, I think there was a huge ramp um, then. Um, and that's what, you know, at this, at this time, Britain, Britain had loads of uh, companies that made cars. It was like 50 or different companies. Yeah. Unfortunately, not true anymore. Um, and interestingly and relevant to what, have, what we're about to talk about, uh, the uh, famous jazz club in London, Ronnie Scott's, opened. Did it really? On the 30th of October. Wow, okay. In 1959. How about scientifically then? What what was going on in the I've world? got no idea. I mean, DNA was kind of done in 53. 1953, yeah. So... I don't know what was going on in 1959. And obviously, 59 was a couple of years before the we choose to go to the moon speech from JFK. Yeah. We sent Sam the monkey into space. Sam the Sam monkey. Sam the monkey is part of the Mercury program. Right. Um, uh, I feel sorry for Sam the wanked, monkey because I'm sure he died. <laughs> he didn't come back down, I don't think. <laughs> um, the first, first example of human HIV, 59, first case. Oh, yeah. They were mutated from the Belgian Congo. Uh, that was because people were like bumming monkeys. <laughs> That's what I heard. Is that not true? I don't know, to be honest. I didn't. I mean, if it got transmitted from monkeys to humans, there must have been some interaction. Does that maybe have to be not sexual? monkey love. It could just be. Or maybe just could have been like foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon it would be possible well, to engage in foreplay with, with a, a monkey, with, with a, a chimpanzee? I reckon. Before anyone gets angry out there. Are we, Steve and I are both fully aware that chimpanzee is not a monkey. Yes, of course, okay. it's an ape. Great. A yeah. um, couple of other scientific things. The, uh, uh, Gordon Gould uh, published the term laser for the first time, which is wow. really, really exciting for me. I like that. It's so good to know. Laser, right? That. Go on there, Nick. What does it stand for? Come on. Come on. I'm going to say it's don't stop me before I finish. Okay. Something like light activated simulated emission of radiation. Oh, you got three of the five. Oh, no. I should know you this. You should. Do you want to try again? Amplified, amplified. Close amplification. Uh, something amplification, simulated mission, no. stimulated mission. Stimulated. Oh, well, don't hold me up on a T and a bloody. It's <laughs> a different word. So it's light amplified. Light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Okay, I was close enough. <laughs> well, great. Well, that sounds fantastic. One of the other things was Miles Davis was doing his famous album, wasn't he? He was. And shall we talk about some science? Yeah.
Okay, Steve. So there yeah. were only five tracks on this album. Yes, there's only five tracks. So we get a little bit longer to talk about the science a little bit. Sometimes <laughs> I'm we sure to, we have to rattle through them if there's like 15 a- a- tracks on the album. Yeah. So um, five tracks. The first of them is called So What? Which I think is is, is a, a probably, I think, my favourite song. It's very iconic. Yeah. Yeah, it just reminds me of kind of um, private eye detective <laughs> movies. I can imagine. Yeah, like someone with like a with like a, a smoky glass panel that on the front says censors Nick Evans. Yeah. You wear a hat, wear a, wear a trilby hat. Yeah. So, so to me, so what? Gives so me, what? Yeah, it's seen different, so isn't it? I don't care. Whatever. Have you heard of Mark Manson? I have not heard of Mark he's Manson. Got he a, sounds famous, though. He's got... It does, actually, because he's got that serial killer surname. Which kind of brings <laughs> it out, doesn't he? Mark Manson. And he's got the alliterative thing. Yeah, so it sounds like a, like a front man of a band. Yeah, Mark Manson. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's got a, he wrote a famous book. Famous-ish. I'd heard of it before. It yeah. reminded me of it. Uh, he's also got a blog. And the blog and the book is... Who is, is he? Called, who, is he? who is this guy? He's a blogger and a writer. Okay, that's it. But he's famous for writing a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a <laughs> Fuck. Uh, yes, I've seen this advertised that, like, um, when you go... I've just been at a bunch of airports recently, and you always see that. It's always one of the best sellers when you walk around W.X. Smith's. So, to give you a flavour yeah. of it, here's the sort of opening gambit from his website. I'm not giving a shit. Yeah, in my life... Oh my god! I've got to change this American accent's getting worse. I'm just <laughs> going to do it. Let's, let's, can we have a different? I'm going to do it. I guess no, no, West no, no. Country. In my <laughs> life, I've given a f- about many people and many things. I've also not given a f- about many people and many things, and it's those f- I've not given have made all the difference. Can we have that again in an Indian accent? No. The point is, most of us struggle throughout our lives by giving too many f**ks in situations where f**ks do not deserve to be given. We give a f- when a show on we like was cancelled on TV. We give a f- when our colleagues don't bother asking us about our awesome weekend. We give a f- when it's raining when we're supposed to go out jogging in the morning. It's giving everywhere, strewn around like seeds in the motherfucking springtime. <laughs> and for what purpose? For what for what reason? Convenience? Easy comforts? A pat on the fucking back, maybe? This is a problem, my friend. I'm going back into America now. Because when we give too many f**ks, when we choose to give a f**k about everything, then we feel as though we are perpetually entitled to be comfortable and feel happy at all times. That's when life fucks us. Okay. So that's the kind of flavour of it. You're going to have to get busy with your um, well, crow be, sound. Is it a quacks. crow? Or a yeah. Um, anyway, so, and he's got many other blogs. Thing, one other one called In Defence of Being Average, which I took some comfort in. Yeah. Because we're all average, really, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, about nearly everybody's average about nearly everything. Yeah, I mean, that's what, it's, that's what the point you make. There are two, seven, over seven billion people in the planet, only about a thousand or a couple of thousand of any major influence at any given time. So that leaves, like, what, seven billion one hundred ninety-nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand of us to come to terms with the limited <laughs> scope of our lives. Anyway. It's a fair point. Anyway, so, so it got, what's got me thinking. What's well, this got okay, to do with so science, what? Nick? So I remember you saying a long time ago that when you're young, yeah, you you feel intrigued about the world, asking yes. questions, curious. People are curious, yeah. and then at some point, you think your idea is scientists keep that, and normal people lose it. Yeah. So I I thought, well, is Steve right or not? Because I, I I suspected I'm probably that, not. <laughs> well, no, you are right, and it has been. So people do. They've worked out. Kids stop be, being interested in science or have less of an interest, measurable lack of interest, somewhere between the ages of 9 and 11. 
So okay. at eleven, how, how does one how does one assess a child's interest in science? Well, there's a there's a few sources. I mean, one example is a paper by some Turkish guy, and we don't have the reference to hand. But I I actually he he went through hundreds of people, five hundred and forty um, kids. These are European. These like, are Turkish. Okay. Kids. There are other studies actually. This is one I focused on. I'm going to show Steve a, a graph that, which I plotted actually. I've plotted a graph for today as well. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Oh my fucking god! Oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know why that is. There was a table in the paper, and I don't like tables without a graph. I think. Well, why no, I've done exa- I'm just going to show you a quick sh- shot of my graph that I plotted this morning to prove to you. All right, there's a table, so I'm going to show, right, show you. Me a list- graph. Listeners, so we'll we'll. We'll uh, make this available. Can on, we call, it, can we call this podcast the, the, the podcast of many graphs? If you want. <laughs> anyway, the guy, he looked at people between the ages of seven and 11. So grade levels. He called yeah. the American grade levels. Seven and 11. Grades four to eight. And measured their interest by asking... So like, this is just before you go to secondary school, basically, isn't it? It's, I know, it's junior school ages. When I, old-fashioned junior school to me was yeah. seven to 11. Right, and I didn't have that. Do you not? We had infants, four to seven. Junior seven to eleven, then secondary school I eleven to, to eighteen. Mi- I just went to middle school. Oh yeah, middle. They have that in weird places, don't they? <laughs> in the south, in Wolverhampton, we had juniors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the real way of doing it. Anyway, things, so. show me the graph. Show me the graph. I want to see the graph. The graph. I'm all excited by the so graph. So there's Nick. the graph. So that's interest in science on the y-axis. Uh-huh. No error. So I'm showing. But so yeah, okay. I could have plotted them. I do have the standard deviation. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, so, a, hang on, and age on the x-axis. So the age on the x-axis goes from seven to eleven, and there's some metric on the y-axis. And, and how long ago? And I'm this just going to describe Steve the, for you, you guys out there, the shape of it. So that it's a declining trend, gradually declining trend, girls and boys separately, and then there's a big drop off between the age of ten and eleven. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So there you go. So yeah, kids get less interested in science about that age. So what are you learning in science at that age? Probably, I'm just trying to think. So it's you don't often do science at junior school. This is in general interest in science, right? So I can tell you what the but, author thinks it is, okay, and what people generally think it is. Can I? It's about the time when science stops being fun, messing around, and people have to do maths. <laughs> so maths <laughs> is the enemy. When people oh. have to start doing maths, they become and it's hard, and you've got to write stuff. Yeah. And be a bit more analytical. But, but when you're just like playing with sand and when like making water around, wheels. And you don't have to do it in this kind of rigorous way. That's when people start to lose interest. It's like yeah. they, they think, oh, why is this guy blue? <laughs> and then they, they realise what you have to do to, to, to work find out. out why this and then they're like, <laughs> they're like, so what? Track two. What is it? Freddy Freeloader. Freddy Freeloader. This reminds me of a famous film, possibly the worst film I've ever seen, called Freddy Got Fingered. It's pretty bad. That's we won't Tom dwell Green. on that. Yeah, yeah, let's not dwell on that. Um, although in that, he, he, I don't know if you remember Freddy, Freddy Got Fingered, but he has a. He, <laughs> I don't want to remember uh, anything about. There Freddy is Got one Fingered. quite thing that sticks in my mind. Not the bit. one when he pulls off a horse. No, not that bit. He invents a uh, like a superhero and superhero's magic powers. He can see through wood. <laughs> <laughs> but only wood, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. I mean, that in retrospect, that is quite funny. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I can't stop imagining it now in my house. It was a cat. It was the like room a, it wouldn't like change a, a huge cat. amount. Yeah. He just had his only magic power was that he could see through wood. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, Freddy Freeloader. Freddy Freeloader. Um, I, this it links to what I wanted to talk to you about, this one thing that occurred in 1959. Oh, yeah. There's a very, very famous speech given by Richard Feynman in 1959 at Caltech. Oh, there's plenty of room at the bottom. Plenty of room at the bottom. I, even I've heard of that. It's such a good talk. I'm going to link this. You should read it, right? But I'm just going to read you the opening bit of it, right? Because it's just so... It's just... So... It got me thinking about these things in general, right? So I think what you get in science a lot is that if I came up and just tried to speak to you about the future, what the world's going to be like in 50 years, right? Yeah. You you as a scientist was marginalise me for trying to be creative, right? So if I was going to be like, why is he talking about that? Why can't he just get on with this actual research that's peer-reviewed? Why is he musing about the future? Yeah. So I think in the moment, you'd be a bit annoyed, right? But looking back, it's like so, which I'm sure Feynman was, everyone must have that went to this this talk in 1959, uh, I'm sure everyone was just really annoyed by Feynman. So for the people that don't know, Richard Feynman was a very famous physicist. He um, invented quantum electrodynamics, um, and he also uh, won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and he wrote this. He gave this speech, which was intended to be for undergraduates and to excite them about science. Yeah. And it predates, and they say, a lot of nanotechnology and uh, just a huge amount of uh, miniaturization. He spoke about the, the fact that at the time, people were trying to make big stuff and make it small. I think that's fine, though, for, you know for people who are extremely successful, well-known. Do you know what I mean? It's when common or garden Muppets start, but, you know, but maybe, making But maybe is it cause or effect, right? You know, maybe, maybe because he was a big dreamer, he was successful and allowed him to do that. Yeah, you know? but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a public lecture on it, would you, from someone who was unknown? <laughs> That's, true. Only, you, That's you, true. That's true. But you, you have lots of public lectures, and I've been to loads, and most of them are really dull. Right, you know, and so it's unusual to have someone. That, so, so he starts off. Let me read you the OP's opening gambit. He says, "I imagine experimental physicists must often look at, with envy at men like Kemmerling Unz, who discovered feel, the field like low temperature, which seems to be bottomless, in which one can go down and down. Such a man is then a leader, and then some uh, temporary monopoly in a scientific adventure." Percy Bridgman, in designing the way to obtain higher pressures, opened up another new field and was able to move into it and lead us all along. The development of even higher vacuum was uh, was a continuing development for the same kind. So he's saying, which I think you get a lot in science, right? You know, people, um, uh, other scientists cover some particular area because there's loads you can do. That's not what it's about. And in in Plenty of Room at the Bottom, he goes through, he talks about, um, he says, I would like to describe a field in which little has been done but in which there is an enormous amount that can be done in principle. This field is not quite the same as others in that it will not tell us much about fundamental physics in the sense of what are these strange particles, but it is more solid like state physics in the sense that it can tell us much more of great interest about the strange phenomena that occur in complex situations. Furthermore, a point that is most important is that we have an enormous uh, amount of technical application. So he starts to talk about, could we write the... People are quite often said at the time, right? So this is the 50s, say... Um, as soon as you mentioned miniaturization, people at the time say, well, do you know now that there's a machine that can write the Lord's Prayer on the pin, on the head of a pin, right? And this was in 59. Mm. And, and, and Feynman's like, so what, right? You know, to quote your first oh, thing. Oh, yeah, okay. And he said, well, so why, why are we constrained by, why can we not write the entire 24 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica on the head of, on the head of a pin, right? And because of it's now- dead small, the head of a pin's <laughs> tiny. So then he goes, through, so how small is it, right? So he goes... The head of a pin is about a sixteenth of an inch across. If you magnify it by 25,000 diameters, the area of the head of the pin is equal to the area of all the pages of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Therefore, all all that is necessary to do is to reduce the size of the writing in the encyclopedia by 25,000 times, right? 
is that possible? And then he makes this assumption about the size of a letter and the size of an, he knows the size of an atom. Yeah. And anyway, it is. And then he goes on <clears> further to say, actually, if you stored it in some way, which is exactly what we do today, we could easily store. We can think about the miniaturization of solid state um, um, computers. computers. Exactly, right? Anyway, so, he's talk- so he actually talks quite a lot about biologists and how wonderful they are. And then he slags them off a bit as well, which is always good to see. And he slags off chemists. But, um, which is even better. Which is even better. Um, but he talks about miniaturization of computing. Right. Yeah, well, uh, hang a minute. Time. The tune's called Freddy Freeloader. Yeah, loading and loading. I'm talking about computers in a sec. Oh right, okay, right. right. So um, this sounds like the most tenuous. <laughs> well, I just really <laughs> want to talk about plenty room. At the bottom. I don't blame you. Um, so, he, so he talks about so Merriam of '59, right? So this, as I said, it's the, f- the first year that a computer went into a bank in '59, right? Yeah. And he's talking about computers, and he's just think how far we've come in that time time scale. And the music's still relevant, but the technology is new, relevant, right? Mm. He says, I don't know how to do this on a small scale in a practical way. He's talking about miniaturization, but I do know that computing machines are very large. They fill rooms. We can't make them very small. Make them. Uh, we, we could make them very small. Make them have little wires, little elements, and little by little, I mean little. For instance, the wires could be 10 or even 100 atoms in diameter, and the circuit should be a few thousand angstroms across, and angstroms a tenth of a nanometer for everyone else. I don't uh, know. Well, that's really tiny, so that's probably like about one ten thousandth the width of a human hair, something like that, an uh, angstrom. A bit smaller, yeah. Yeah, well, even smaller. hundred, hundred thousandths the width of a human hair. Titchy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so he talks about... So I started looking it up, right? So at the time... Uh, there was there was the, the all, like Intel and all those companies Hewlett Packard and all the lithography that make c- computer chips were um, they existed and computers did exist but obviously they were huge things and, yeah. and, and actually it was just around the time of the invention of the electronic transistor rather than the valves and that, so now the way we measure how well computers can go how fast they can go is on the physical size of the transistor so the, the smaller you make the transistor the more transistors you can pack in and the faster your computer goes right so I'd like a graph Nick. you know I don't even know what a transistor is it's a switch so a transistor is. is just a switch it's just a switch so if you had a thing I mean the whole thing with computers <laughs> baffles me <laughs> what's the, what's the yeah, trouble so well, don't say what's the trouble because I reckon you if I drilled down yeah. you probably wouldn't quite I, ma- I made a it. bit as an undergraduate made a one bit, bit. A bit, a yeah, binary it digit. It stores one piece of information on, on, on five transistors. But you're right, it, it, it can seem quite confusing. But the thing basically is that the physical size of a transistor um, means, but is correlated with the speed of computers, right? And at the time, Feynman was talking about stuff right at the other end of the spectrum. So at the time, there were big machines, and each transistor was, was like, you could hold it in your hand. It was like wires and, and vac- vacuum tubes. And now there's trillions of transistors in your phone, right? Trillions, you know, so that, like, there's loads of them. So, and that's because they've got smaller, right? So think about, so I started looking it up. So, so the first, earliest I can find when they started really producing them in large scale, 1971. How big do you think you could make a transistor at that point? In 1971? Yeah. Oh, sorry, not how big, though. These are ones that were commercially available by companies. They were selling a, a thing you could buy, and it had loaded little transistors all lined up next to each other. I don't know. 10 microns, right? So 10 microns, that's about the size of about a bacteria. Maybe a bit bigger than a ba- A <laughs> human cell. A human yeah. cell. So a tenth the width of a hair yeah, or something like it. that. Something like that. Couldn't see it. No, you can't see it, right? But over... And now what I've done, over the next, you know, up until 2008, I'm going to show Nick a graph now that I plotted this morning. This is the physical sizes of transistors in um, in computer chips. By This is by Intel. So everyone, Steve's showing me a graph with some dots on it. And the year is at the bottom. And then the size is going up the side. And basically the 
dots start off quite high up the y-axis yeah. and then they very quickly get very very small until they were almost at the bottom they go really titchy really quickly. So, so now, literally this year, Intel <coughs> just started released a, um, a chip that has that has seven nanometer size transistors on it. Mm. Seven, and I went and worked it out because they're made of silicon. You can work out the distance of seven, the, the number of atoms in seven nanometers. It's about a hundred. Is it? So, 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 so Feynman was talking about like it was wacky. Like they're never going to get this. This is, this is the limit, though. This is the edge of it, and we're, we're converging on it. And if you look at that graph, you can see we're converging. So it's a graph that kind of slowly draws down to what's called an asymptote. So it never quite reaches that point. But that yeah. fundamental limit is essentially the, the interspacing of, of of a couple of silicon atoms. Well, blow me down. Isn't it cool? It is amazing. Blue and green. Blue and green. This is a beautiful tune. I. Do you know what? The, I always uh, get. It's hard to keep track of the, tra- of the of the tracks in this album because it's one of those ones you put on. It's not like you skip to track three or something, is it? You just you you, you play the the album out. Like, yeah. It's a very lovely ballad track. Um, it's actually because uh, Miles Davis he worked with a bunch of other quite famous uh, musicians. Cannonball Adderley was one of them. Yeah. Went on to great things. And Bill Evans is a fantastic jazz pianist. Yeah. It's called Blue and Green. So that got me thinking, what's the first thing you think of if you hear Blue and Green? Um, the Colours of the Rainbow. Oh, that's a good one. I was thinking of Blue Green Algae. Oh. Everyone's banging on about Blue Green Algae. Uh, isn't that going to say they're going to save the world in some ways? I don't it, know. Doesn't it make fuel or something? You can something? eat them. I mean, in science fiction, generally what they do is they have big... You know, the grey goose type thing right, yeah. in the future. Like in the Matrix. Uh, it's like you the... with your vegan January. You know, in the future, I'm going to eat some slop. Anyway, blue-green okay, algae. Blue-green right. algae. It's not actually, they're not actually algae. I didn't know this. Oh, is that right? I no, know. they're actually okay. cyanobacteria. Okay. Cyanobacteria are bloody interesting. I'm going to talk, oh, to, you. I'm going to, talk to you about cyanobacteria. Oh, great. Okay, <laughs> okay go well, on. Well, I beat you to it. But Damn anyway, it. yeah, so they're cyanobacteria, but they've, they evolved, and you may already know this, Steve, around three billion years ago. I didn't ago. know that, no. And they've only ever evolved once. So it's only once where life has evolved to harvest um, photons and to be able to turn that energy from photons from light other than into chemical energy. Well, actually, plants are all based upon... Plants are eukaryotes. Yeah. So they're cell and algae. Oh, so, so, so they, the, 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 the trees and cyanobacteria... cyanobacteria share a common ancestor is that what you mean well what i'm trying to say is that cyanobacteria bacteria and trees are actually eukaryotes and eukaryotes exist and they, they've at some point co-opted um another organism to live within their cells so chloroplasts and mitochondria yeah. so chloroplasts you find only in plants mitochondria you find in plants and animals they are um organelles which used to be bacteria but they've been co-opted by the cell to provide a function yeah so they're kind of like a little so so you can think you can almost think of a chloroplast in a tree as being um a cyanobacteria that's been co-opted to help the tree cells chloroplasts have their own dna like like yes like um mitochondria have their own yes they they do isn't that weird to think about that there's like all of in your in all of your cells there's these little like things that have snuck in that have their own dna that have nothing to do with you we've (laughs) just had this weird deal with them where they make energy and we give them somewhere nice yeah. to live 
Anyway, these blue and green algae, they evolved about 3 billion years ago. And because they um, were harvesting photons, a byproduct of them harvesting energy from photons yeah. is they would rip electrons off water and turn water into molecular oxygen, basically. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And actually, that, that, that fundamentally changed Earth as a planet. Yeah. Because from being a very anaerobic atmosphere with an atmosphere of methane and carbon dioxide... Yep. And ammonia, I think. Um, it became an oxygen-plentiful atmosphere. And what happened was the oxygen um, reacted with the methane to form carbon dioxide. And it made the greenhouse effect. So the Earth became much Whoa. cooler. Much cooler because methane is such a strong greenhouse gas compared yeah. with carbon dioxide. 24,000 times. So actually, that was the first ice age. First time it got cool. Anyway, so that's that's fascinating. It's, it's amazing thing that, that, so that... So there was a time in... in evolution where that happened for the first time yeah like there was that one moment one moment where the first oxygen molecule was made via via this process and that changed the changed the world pretty amazing isn't it cool yeah and it was called uh, it had a couple of names let me just try and remember the names so the, so the cyanobacteria they were doing the the, the water split. It's called the Great Oxygenation Event. Some people call it the Oxygen Holocaust because <laughs> it like wiped out a lot of the other life. And then the fact that the plentiful supply of oxygen made the uh, Earth very kind of energy rich. Yeah. So then there you was a lot of energy. Yeah. So it went from being energy poor to energy rich. And that for that that ultimately precipitated very rapid evolution and growth of animal life. So eukaryotes followed on after the cyanobacteria mm. and then the growth of big complex animals all dependent upon oxygen basically mm -hmm. anyway so it got me thinking about well that's quite interesting why haven't we like got because like, like why can't we make oxygen why can't we harvest energy from sunlight why aren't there animals that can harvest energy from sunlight mm. that would be dead useful right that would be if you were go a bit hungry. Around. If you're hungry, you could just go and stand outside. Lie in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh God, I'm starving. I'm so going to go why, late. So why do you think that's the? Why do you think we don't? There are no animals. Uh, because for... making oh, it's chemistry probably related. I think for making molecular oxygen is incredibly reactive. So oh, the, the it's molecular oxygen, with the exception of fluorine, is the most electronegative element. So it likes to burn. You know, we know when we consider things burn, it's because they, they burn in oxygen. I think that's a good point. I think you would have to revolve some other mechanism. Anyway, um, basically, it's because it's you wouldn't have enough energy. There is one example of an animal. Which, you wouldn't have enough. What do you mean? You, wouldn't, you can't get enough energy from the sun. Yeah. If you think about what think about what plants do. What do they generally do? Don't move about. They much. don't move around much. No. So they're, they're heavy though. Yeah, but yeah. their energy demands are not high. How much? How many calories does a does a does an oak tree need a day? I don't know, Steve. I don't know that kind out. of information off the cuff. <laughs> we can look it up later. But also yeah. think about the no, area. Right. Think about it, yeah. the area of the leaves on the tree. Yeah, large. It's quite a lot. Yeah. Think about your surface area. Yeah. It's not, not so enough. much. You'd have to turn into some like massive <laughs> flat leaf. <laughs> to be able to generate and then you, able, then you won't be able to do all the amazing things you do like carry microphones around and squirt a pipette mm. anyway so that's what we, but there is one example of an animal which harvests harvests energy and uses that energy uses that light for energy because yeah. there's other people obviously light falls in our eyes and we use that as a sensor to perceive the world around us yeah but that's but we're not taking if you're hungry you can't go out and, and no. just stare at the sun you know, it doesn't work so is it a, is it uh let me have a guess it's going to be something small because of your argument is that fair it, like it's going to be or something very everything's relative isn't it 
I think it's going to be something small that has a high surface to area to volume ratio. Um, I don't know. What is it? It's an emerald sea slug um, called, I don't know how to pronounce the Latin name, Vaucheria littoria. Right. Uh, oh, no, that's the algae. So basically what it does is it eats. It's called it's called Elysia chlorotica. Right. And this is the slug. It feeds on an alga called Vaucheria littoria. It doesn't matter what it's called. Yeah. Um, it's an intertidal algae. Where, where does it where does it live? This slug in the sea, and then <laughs> and, and, it eats the algae, and it sucks out, and it doesn't digest the entire body of the algae. It keeps the chloroplasts, and it stores them in their digestive system, right? And it ma- maintains them in a, an alive state. And okay, so it can't make them. Doesn't know. It, it's like it eats the chloroplasts and stores them and uses them for energy harvesting. And then the chloroplasts grow. And there was some, they, they can survive for ages without but eating. How is that different just to me eating a cake? Because the... Cl- the I'm not using... You're saying they're using the chloroplasts to... So when I eat a cake, the oh, let's, let, when I eat some broccoli, the broccoli takes energy from the sun and turns, stores it in the chemical bond. And then I eat the broccoli and then I break that chemical bond. And, yeah, you're not, you're not holding the broccoli... The broccoli. Yeah, and the broccoli is generating energy and pumping it into your hand. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's happening with the slug. It's storing the chloroplasts, which are still functioning. The right. slug is green, emerald sea slug. Yeah, and it's harvesting the light, and the chloroplasts are making sugars, which the slug is then using. Uh... So it doesn't have to feed so much, and you can keep these slugs for a very long period of time, and they'll survive without eating. Ah, well. Blue and green. Blue and green. Nick, it's my last one. Oh, it's your last one. It's my last one. All blues. So this is a big one. It's 11 minutes on this one. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to talk to you about... Uh, uh, hold on. Uh, I want to talk to you about channel rhodopsins <laughs> from bacteria. Okay. We've already done this, Steve. Can we move on? No, it's slightly different. It is slightly <laughs> different. Um, so, you know, sometimes if you go into a, a hospital or something like that, sometimes they sterilise things with blue light, you know? UV light, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know why you do that? To kill the bacteria. But why does it kill them? Um, UV is energetic and quite dangerous. I mean, it kills your cells as well and your skin. Yeah. That's why you get sunburn. So... Do you think it would make sense that bacteria would have a way of trying to avoid blue light then because of that? Yeah, I would have thought so. They're so like, yeah. they're like they're like little I mean, we, vampires. We have a way of doing it. It's called melanin. Yeah, yeah. So have the way a pigment in your skin which sucks it up, dissipates the energy, and just turns it into heat. Yeah, yeah. Um, so bacteria do have these things. They have these things. These little they have this little flagella. Typically, it depends so they, on. The, so they get tanned. They don't get. They don't get tanned. They don't. So they, get tanned. they have a tan to start with. No, they don't have any tan. This well, is I thought the you trouble. said they had a mechanism. To they do. It. They have a mechanism to get out the way. Ah. So, so they're, they're like. So they're, they're like, like vampires. So oh right. So they right, can't right. go out in the day. So we can have a tan. Bacteria just don't have that. If they they get, have to go if they underneath get the umbrella. UV light, they die. Right. Right. Okay. So they. So but so there are areas like blue light, which is still energetic and dangerous, but doesn't like kill them straight away. Right. Okay. Um. But red light's fine. Yeah. So. Um, because exactly as you said, because as you go further into the ultraviolet, the photons get more energetic. 
so there's these so so bacteria have these little whips little they're called flagella that sit on the outside of yeah they're like they're like the, the tails of tadpoles the tails of tadpoles yeah. and they actually rotate these flagella it's the one example of an axle in um in biology at least yeah, that amazing. i'm aware of it's similar um, to the atp synthase harvest energy in mitochondria but that's another story yeah so do you know well do you know, it's actually related so do you know what um what makes that that atp synthase rotate uh, and or what makes the the tail of a flagellum whip mm, a right. hydrogen proton gradient exactly yeah so it's a, so it's sensitive to electricity yeah to, to put it it's electric way. it's an it's electric. electric motor it's an electric motor and there's there's a different <laughs> it's a whip <laughs> yes it looks like a whip so it's so a little outboard motor think of it as like a cool. of, of a, of a yeah, boat a propeller anyway so when it goes near blue light it has this spe specific little receptor that sits in the surface of the membrane like an eye little eye, little eye yeah. but when it sees blue light then changes the the electricity it lets lets protons go through in fact it's the the charge the charged ions but for the sake of argument it's the same thing let stuff go through which allows it to be able to to change the 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 electroprotomotive force so how much those little outboard motors are moving but it all just works by itself so it has all these little sensors these little eyes around the edge of it and if it goes near an area that's too much blue light it gets depolarized in that region which makes fast. it flip on the makes them spin on that side and pushes it away from the light right. so it's got all these onboard motors that make it swim away that's from amazing. blue light isn't it cool yeah right i never knew bacteria could see before well i mean it depends how you find seeing but yeah well, that's like, the same as seeing i mean somewhat it's like having lots of little eyes that all see one thing seeing rather. light or dark they can see light or it's dark it's just a type of seeing yeah i think so right mm. okay um, anyway, these, these these proteins are called channel redopsins. And as biologists like to do, and you'll appreciate this, is you can take them and you can waz them in other things, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things they've wazzed them in, I came across a really cool paper, which is actually by a colleague of mine, who is one of those people that's just so, you know, you come across some scientists and you're like, he's just so much better than I'll ever be. Like, well, it's most like... of them for me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this person in particular, a guy called Adam Cohen, um, he uh, wrote a paper in 2004 called All Electrical, All Optical Electrophysiology in Mammalian Neurons Using Engineered Microbial Redopsins. Yeah. Which is quite a boring title. But what he did is he took this little protein, uh, this little little channel, this little eye that bacteria have, and he put it in a, in a neuron. And just in the same way that, and that's how our, our brains also work in a very similar way. They, they work by, by uh, firing the so-called action potential, this little electrical charge that moves along a neuron. So what he did is he put, um, so how far, there's the question. So, so in our neuron, how quickly does that electrical charge move? Do you know? Uh, speed of light. <laughs> no, not that far. Uh, millimiles per hour. <laughs> Uh, 40 miles an hour. How long would it take to, for, for, for a neuron to, to, to um, respond? One millisecond. Fire? That's about right. Yeah, it's about a millisecond. Um, and that was, I'm just guessing. So, yeah, so it's about a million, so it could do it a million times a second. And you've got, you know, however many billion neurons in your brain, and they've all got about 10,000 connect connections. So it can tell you the combination of all these little neurons firing here to, to, to be sat uh, recording a podcast for you is, is, is a lot. Anyway, he put this this rhodopsin protein in back to, in in neurons in human neurons, mm. and then what he did is he said, okay, I want to be able to see that process of firing. I want to see when I when I stimulate a neuron, I want to see the wave of electricity moving down the neuron, and he did it, right? And it happens over a millisecond, right? The whole thing, right? Do you want to have a look at the video? Yeah, it's go really on. cool. So, explain what you see before I play it. Hold on. What does this look like, Nick? It looks like a blob on a screen with it looks like a spidery blob. Spidery blob. So yeah. what you're seeing there is a single. It's a it's a it's a plated neuron, 
and you can see all these various different little axons coming out of it, right? And then what I'm going to do now is describe what's happening now, Nick. Uh, it's pulsing. Some of its arms are pulsing. Like, they're moving, like the pulse is moving along the arm. So what that image is, is a movie, it's a real-time movie that's taken over 1.5 milliseconds, so, you know, a millionth of a second. And that's the propagation of, of as the electrical, as these little, because it's got this little, uh, he initially stimulates it here, which is why you see it, which is why you see it. And, and then you can see the wave of electricity move. This is how your thoughts are communicating, how your wow. memories are stored. Amazing, like, you know, like you can just, in, you can see it propagating and it bounces off certain regions and reflects off others. It's really beautiful. So we'll add it to the, um, we'll put Amazing. It in the links. Wow. Uh, and that's possible because of the blue light. Wow. All blue. This last one's called Flamenco Sketches. Flamenco Sketches. <laughs> Sounds like something out of Toast of London. I've got something for Steve. And um, guys at home, I'm going to... We'll post these up so you can have a look it at them like later. we've got some drawings here. So, so I, I, when I was thinking about the topic for this, I thought, Flamenco Sketches. So, I thought I would draw a picture. This will become relevant in a minute. Okay. Bear with me. You Bear with get, me. You know, you know your wife is an illustrator. She's probably very good at drawing. Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> okay. So I've got two sketches in my hand. Right. I thought I'd illustrate the difference in sketching ability. It's between you and your wife. Yeah. So I get two <laughs> minutes out to draw a flamenco dancer. So I drew one and Maria drew one independently. Okay. Do you want to see the results? <laughs> I do. Here we go. Right. You've got to guess. All right. You've got to guess who did which one. Okay. How long? Three, <laughs> two, one. I think Maria did the one on the left. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just describe those for oh all of the gosh. guys that are Right, out so there. what we've got here, it looks like the Rolf Haru from Rolf's Cartoon Club uh, holding a burger. Um, <laughs> uh, so I've got two drawings. One of them is just with black felt tip that looks like, uh, like a... Th- two-year-old drew, drew it and one of them looks like a like a professional illustrator drew it which is exactly the reality um nick's made it's like a kind of witch <laughs> with really long arms <laughs> holding some ten, some table tennis bats because <laughs> we did it independently they so they, yeah, they, they're in this very similar position to be fair it's incredible and did you show, did you were you drawing from a reference image of a no okay that was purely from imagination so if everyone's imagining guys at home if you imagine yeah. a flamenco dancer you know what it's probably you'd think about them you'd like, think about the flamenco dancer holding castanets yeah one arm up above the head one arm sort of crooked. It looks the like side. the emoji. That's why you think about that. It's the it's the it's the it's the flamenco dancer emoji. I didn't even know there was an emoji. We did subconsciously because you you've drawn. I, I, I that's think, your bearing in mind that this. That's Steve's hypothesis. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's what I thought of, yeah. and um, it got me thinking. I was already thinking about this actually. The ability to draw. I'm a terrible. I've always been really bad. What, did, you, did you see art? I didn't do GCSE art. You're not even good enough to do that. I hate art. Right. I didn't even like the feel of the... the you're quite a tactile... You're quite good with your hands in general, though, like in the lab. I've got a steady like hand. I'm reasonably dexterous. I play the piano. Exactly, I'm, yeah. I've got... I could crap at art. I can't, can't do it. <laughs> and I didn't like things. I didn't like the feel of the brush, even. Anyway, do you think that um, drawing ability is uh, more... You're trained to do it, or do you think it's a genetic thing? Oh, I think you could be trained to do it. You can be trained to do it, but there's a very strong genetic linkage, as has been proven. Is that really? Yeah, with twins. So there's some amazing twin studies out there. Okay. So what, you take one twin and don't let them draw, and one, you train, you give them loads of drawing lessons, is that? Yeah, so the stu- this, this was a study of almost 8,000 twins. Wow, okay. Anyway, so they, they were able to find 
that they they were that it had a greater the genetics had a greater effect than and how did they ability. do it? What? I didn't read any more about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so well, no, I did, I did. I'm lying, I did. It's I'm just talking about. Yeah. So, so the other thing which was um, tested was whether or not. So this paper is quite interesting in that it it found it was trying to test whether or not drawing ability would affect you could tell intelligence from a child's ability to draw okay so, is it so at the age of four, is yeah. it a predictor and they thought this because there was a test back in the 50s right it was called the good enough drawer man test <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you named that and the test came in <laughs> i wonder what that could possibly be <laughs> the test it correlated moderately with scores on very time consuming iq tests right so and what they did was they had a bit of text and i'm just going to read a bit out of it so it says the test came with some certain info and this yeah. info read if your child is a girl say draw me a picture of a girl do the best that you can make sure that you draw all of her if your child's a boy say draw a picture of a boy do the best you can make sure you draw all of him okay so basically and then what they did is they they got a point for each of the following bodily features so Head, eyes, nose, mouth, ears, hair, body, arms, legs, hands, and feet. Okay? And the the, yeah. the more detailed and comprehensive the picture score, higher. It doesn't mean it's any good. <laughs> it doesn't. I'll show you a couple of examples <laughs> of the pictures. Do you want to see? <laughs> so, look, there you go. How old were these? Jesus, how old are these twins? <laughs> so, that's how they did it. To answer your point earlier on, they took monozygotic, so identical twins, yeah. and dizygotic, fraternal twins. Yeah. So fraternal twins, for you, any anyone who doesn't know out there, fraternal twins are as similar as a brother and a sister or a brother and a brother. They yeah. just happen to be in the room at the same time. I, monozygotic twins are genetically absolutely identical. Unsurprisingly, they found that um, monozygotic twins draw quite similar pictures. <laughs> Can you see that? Yeah. So I'm showing Steve some that's pictures. The, that's, Describe that picture of a man. That, that, that picture of a man looks like um, three balls on a table. It does, doesn't it? It's really, okay, really I'm terrible. Post that too. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look very good. But it's it actually, good... it actually predicted their. So the higher the score at four correlated yeah. significantly with their IQ at the age of fourteen. So they followed them up for ten years in this study. So there you go. Wow. Flamenco wow. sketches. Nick. Yeah. Before we before we invite Brian in. Yes. Uh, I wanted to I want to go back to the plenty room of the bottom speech. Right. Yeah. So fifty nine. We're talking about fifty nine. We're talking about kind of blue. At the end of the plenty of room of the bottom speech, uh, a um, Richard Feynman uh, starts uh, talking about the future. Right. And he says, just for the fun of it, in order to get the kids interested in the field, right. He, he proposes two challenges. Two challenges that he wants people to do. He says, um, perhaps, um, he says, uh, I will I will give you $1,000 for the first person to uh, put the page of a book onto the area one over 25,000 times smaller than the scale, which was the size that he required, if you remember, to write yeah. the uh, Encyclopedia of Britannica on the head of a pin. Yeah. And he also says, if someone can, can um, uh, build an electric motor... That with uh, that not accounting for wires and leads is only one sixty fourth of a cubed inch, so which is you know relatively small. And he said like so this is because he's saying about miniaturization. And he talks and he says and he finishes it off. He says, um, I do not expect that such prizes will have to wait very long for their claimants. How so, long did it take? So, the, which one do you think uh, was um, was done first? Um, the second one. The you think the electric motor was quicker? Yeah, uh, you're right. 
Do you know how? So fifty nine. When do you think it was? Someone someone claimed their thousand dollars. Thousand pounds. Thousand dollars in nineteen fifty nine is a lot of money. A thousand pounds or dollars. It's dollars. Um, it's a lot of money. You can 19, buy a car. 1967. 1960. Year after. No way. Na- really? Nailed it. How long did? And so there's a guy called William um, McLellan was the person that did it. A meticulous craftsman. He's described as. Wow. Um, and but the writing stuff on something twenty five thousand times smaller. Than, um, than it is, not till 1985. Bloody hell. A guy hell. called Tom Newman, who was a grad, st- a grad student at Stanford. Amazing. But he went to... He got Did he claim the money? Yeah. And who gave it to him? Um, well, at that point, it was Feynman's estate. They kept oh, it. right. Yeah, okay, yeah. amazing. Um, but yeah, um, and so they, that was the end of uh, the uh, Plenty of Room, the Bottom Channels, and that was the end of A Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Cracking. Brian, how you doing? All right! <laughs> Bloody hell, that was brilliant! Did you, you like that? One? No, I didn't, I didn't think Wall you... Street, Leicester, Fulton, oh, Cracking yeah. game! Oh, they did. They, they, um, the Wolves won today, did they, Brian? 4 3 against Leicester, you last see... minute goal! Diogo Jota! <laughs> He's bit not the new Steve Bully, is, is he? Great. Steve Bully. No, I was listening. Sorry, you do, I, had I bet you don't like. Do you like jazz, Brian? No, nah, not really. How about mate. Marjorie? Mar- we found that last time that you've got what that you're married. No, nah, Marjorie, she likes to take that things like that, mate. Take that. Yeah, blue. Right, okay. Blue slam dunk the funk. Was that them? <laughs> Was that five? I, I can't remember. She loves all that stuff though. All the kind of nineties pop she yeah, likes. Yeah, she loves it. Okay, but and so, so there's no no massive jazz. Is there any other nah. anybody else in the in, in Brian in the household? No, nah, fuck off. No, mate. it's just you and you and Marjorie. You and Marjorie. Okay, all right. Anyway, I love that. And I liked it all. And I think I like the uh, blue and green bit. The, the best. blue and green bit. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a I love hearing bit. about bacteria. I like the, re- the the thing with the other one, the seeing bacteria. You like too. The, the vampire I like bacteria. The bacteri- I like the bugs, mate. Yeah. I like, like hearing about the bacteria. Like love them. I tell you what, the canal down where I live is full of them. You want to go swimming in that, mate. Brian, you, you come know, out with a nasty cyanobacteria. <laughs> no, it's in it the does, end of your bum hole. It, it does sound like a little bit like a uh, disease, doesn't oh. it? Brian, I've got a question for you. What's that? We've only got two more uh, Have you? science finals. Yeah. We've got two. Yeah. And I think what we're going to do yeah. in, in honour of uh, 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 the Professor Nicholas Evans is we're going to do a Rush album for the oh, final yeah, one. I, I, but, but we need we need someone to, to suggest an album for our seventh album, we, don't, we haven't got anybody any suggestions. Have you got any ideas? Slade, <laughs> Slade. Why, why fix Slade? Or Goldie? <laughs> is Goldie from the? He's from, from Wolverhampton, mate. He is yes, from bloody Wolves, though, isn't I he? Didn't know that. Is Goldie from Goldie? Goldie's from Wolverhampton, he's and he's been in James Bond. Ah, uh, okay. Bloody all right, great. Alright, so as long as they're from Wolverhampton, it doesn't matter who. Yeah, they are. Slade, mate. Slade. Well, right. actually, you've done the Zeps here. We've we can, done the Zeps. Yeah. He's, he's from North Florida. He's from Kimber. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know I don't mind mate do uh, whatever well we don't mean to keep you I know you've got a lot of stuff to do yeah you got to go see you later bye <laughs>